Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. Today, we're going to be talking about developmental trauma. And when I say this, I mean specifically the fictional diagnosis of developmental trauma. I say fictional because while some medical mental health professionals use this, this is not yet considered an official diagnosis. You will not find this in the DSM-5. You might find it in the upcoming DSM-6. We'll have to wait and see. I have no idea when that's planning to come out, but I know as of the recording of this broadcast, it has not come out. So the first thing I want to talk about is how I came across this diagnosis. I was on my support pages for the parental support and somebody said, oh, they don't use reactive attachment disorder as a diagnosis anymore. They use developmental trauma. And I was like, what? Developmental trauma disorder? I was like, I'm pretty sure that those words have like come across my experience in the past, but I, I haven't heard of it. And my daughter, who is now six years old, who has reactive attachment disorder, or more specifically disinhibited social engagement disorder. We've been in therapy for over three years. We have psychiatrists, we have therapists, nobody has ever brought this up. And today we're going to learn a little bit more about it. So this has been a diagnosis that's been floating around for quite a while. And in 2009, according to the attachmenttraumanetwork.org, they have this whole article on developmental trauma disorder that we're going to be referencing. So if you'd like to go a little more in depth, go to attachmenttraumanetwork.org and look up developmental trauma disorder. But it says in 2009 that the professionals, the medical mental health professionals were trying to get a new diagnosis into the DSM-5. Now the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So this is kind of where the, all of the mental health professionals go, see what's, you know, symptoms line up with what and diagnose their patients. So we're going to dive in, find out a little bit more about it. So the reason they made this differentiation is that they had a PTSD diagnosis. And then they had a complex PTSD diagnosis, but they still thought that there was some stuff that was not covered. And they kind of put it into this developmental trauma disorder stuff. So the DSM-5 was published in 20, I think it was 13, though the article does say it was 2012. So it didn't make it in, even though they had requested it from 2009. And here is the stuff that they had for the proposed criteria for the developmental disorder. So first off, it talks about exposure. Your child or any person, because another unique part of this is that it doesn't necessarily have to be in childhood. They are talking about um, developmental childhood traumas in this specific case. But when you go through other articles, this is a diagnosis that they will even give to adults. So in this case, though, they talk about child, children or adolescents who have experienced multiple or prolonged adverse events over a period of at least one year. Now, this automatically would kick my daughter out of the running, maybe, because all of her stuff, maybe I guess you could say it was a year. She came to us at 11 months, and I imagine it's fairly traumatic to settle into a new family. So 
I maybe maybe it still counts. But what it says here is direct experience or witnessing of repeated severe episodes of interpersonal violence and significant disruptions of protective caregiving as a result of repeated changes in primary caregiver, repeated separation from primary caregiver, or exposure to severe and persistent emotional abuse. So that one, she would absolutely fit in. I don't know that she experienced much violence, but I was not there for the first 11 months of her life. So in the second section, they have affective and physiological dysregulation. (laughs) Well, this is where I like this diagnosis. This is where I wish this was in the DSM-5, because I do think this fits with the child in a way that the reactive attachment disorder and the disinhibited social engagement disorder diagnoses don't cover. So it says here, the child exhibits impaired normative developmental competencies related to arousal regulation, including at least two of the following. Number one, an inability to modulate, tolerate, or recover from extreme affect states such as fear, anger, or shame including prolonged and extreme tantrums or immobilization. So this is kind of where you separate um, between the, the kids who are in the flight and in the fight. So sometimes they have a situation, my daughter, if she feels embarrassed or ashamed or <laughs> scolded in any fashion, she will hit the extreme tantrum. She's a fighter. But other kids kind of shrink back and become immobilized. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can totally see that. Um, The second part is disturbances in regulation and body functions. So persistent disturbances in sleeping, eating, and elimination, overreactivity or underreactivity to touch and sounds, disorganization during routine transitions. Absolutely. (laughs) So that fits for us too. And so I just think, oh yeah, I can see that as being a trauma response. Three, diminished awareness and disassociation of sensations, emotions, and bodily states. This one, I kind of feel like in our situation, this is where she didn't really feel pain when she was little. She could smash herself. She could fall off things. She could have things land on her and she would just boing, (laughs) bounce right up. And I'm like, how do you do this? Like, why is she not crying? But she didn't have that association to those sensations. Her emotions were all cattywampus. Like she was, she would respond to things that were stupid in an astronomically large way. And she wouldn't respond to things that most kids would respond to, such as falling on your face or, you know, slamming headfirst into the counter. That's one I think that like stuck in my mind when, you know, when your kid finally becomes counter height and it's just like a big surprise to them when it did not affect her that she full on smacked into the counter and it (laughs) did not lay her flat. It's funny now, I guess, but she was like knocked almost out and then she just kind of shakes it off and runs. And I was like, Okay, like that was a big moment for me to realize something's not okay. Number four, impaired capacity to describe emotions or bodily states. Now we've discussed this in other uh, parts where they can't in other episodes where they can't describe their emotions. In my opinion, as just a mom of a child with reactive attachment disorder, it's almost like 
there's too much chaos going on in their mind for them to pinpoint anything, whether it's a feeling, whether it's something that they want to do. That's why, in my opinion, they are so impulsive that they just like reach out and do something because there's not a lot of processing going on in any part of their brain. You have to almost pull them back and force them to process every decision. So then in the next section, it's called attentional and behavioral dysregulation. So this is when it says in the article, the child exhibits impaired normative development. uh, This is ridiculous. (laughs) Let me just go down into the examples. So you have to have at least three of these in their reactions and coping with stress. So number one, preoccupation with the threat or an impaired capacity to perceive the threat, including misreading of safety and danger cues. You guys, absolutely. Number two, impaired capacity for self-protection, including extreme risk-taking or thrill-seeking. I've referred to this in the past as like a dopamine chasing where you just, they just kind of can't process. So they just go for everything and just, just go for it. And they also don't have that processing of feeling and stimuli. So they don't have the pain either. Pain is an incredible educational factor for children. It's not there. So then number three, maladaptive attempts at self-soothing, rocking, other rhythmical movements, self-pleasure, those kind of things where they try to self-soothe themselves. Number four, habitual, intentionally or not, reactive self-harm. Number five, inability to initiate or sustain goal-directed behavior. To me, absolutely. This fits everything that is not under the umbrella of what is in the DSM-5 as reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder. So then we're going to go down into the next group. And the next group is called self and relational dysregulation. This has to do with personal identity, which we've talked about. Oh my gosh, why has no one talked to me about this? This is, to me, this is the wonderful umbrella diagnosis that we need in our lives, even though it doesn't really have a clear treatment. But I feel like this is the umbrella that we need. So it says here you need at least three of the following. Now in the previous section, my daughter had every single one of those. And in this one, let's go through. Number one, an intense preoccupation with safety of caregivers or other loved ones or difficulty tolerating reunion with them after separation. Now this one happened to me just recently. I went out of town with my husband. I come back. She makes it very clear, even in in this good moment where we're in a good place with her. She makes it very clear. She is not interested in a relationship with me because I left her. And she is now focusing all of her attention on my husband because she's angry at me. So even in our good times, this one still pops up. But before, even if I went to the store, she's mad at me. Okay, number two, persistent negative sense of self, including self-loathing, helplessness, worthlessness, ineffectiveness, or defectiveness. That was not ours. My daughter is an incredible narcissist back in the day. (laughs) And maybe it was overcompensating, which is definitely possible. But it did not come across in any way that is described. Number three, extreme and persistent 
destruct defiance or lack of reciprocal behavior in close relationships with adults or peers. Now that she's very young, so this I could only say was something that she and I had, not really anybody else. The next one, reactive physical or verbal aggression toward peers, caregivers, or adults. Yep. The next one is inappropriate. I've lost count. I'm so sorry. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Number five, inappropriate attempts to get intimate contact or excessive reliance on peers for safety. My daughter was two years old when she first started her promiscuous inappropriate physical touch with other kids. Now, some of you will be like, oh my gosh, well, maybe she had um, exposure to this kind of thing. And while it is possible, these behaviors were humorous to her. Like she was more so doing it because we would tell her not to. So the first time, you know, she sticks her hand a place that she's not supposed to on somebody else you know, we scold her and then she's like, oh my gosh, I got scolded. That means they hate this. And then she would keep doing that kind of behavior. And then she would kind of escalate those things as she would progress throughout the years. It was bizarre, bizarre to say the least, but let's move on to number six. So you need at least three of these definitely checked off three boxes. But the last one in this section is impaired capacity to regulate empathetic arousal as evidenced by a lack of empathy for or intolerance of expressions of distress of others or excessive responsiveness to the distress of others. Now, my daughter, who is now six, was very good at responding to people who were in pain and very bad at responding to any other situation that required empathy. But I do think that she actually came with quite a bit of empathy compared to some of the kids who have these diagnoses. And I feel very lucky with that. All right, the next section is called post-traumatic spectrum symptoms. Of course, everything's on a spectrum now. Spectrum this, spectrum that. It's just, just assume in life that any of these mental disorders are on a spectrum. I think before we just did assume that someone had it lightly or heavily, but now there we go. Tons. So then you have another section called duration of disturbance. And it says that your child has to be disturbed for at least six months. Check. <laughs> G. Oh, the next section, which they are not, they are lettered, which is why I said G. G is functional impairment. So this is where it talks about the disturbances uh, I'll just, and where they are disturbed. So the first group is scholastic. So when they're not performing in school, they have learning disabilities or they have underperformance, non-attendance, those kind of things that cannot be accounted for neurologically. The second is family, where they have conflict, where they run away, where there's detachment, where there's surrogate replacements, which is huge in these kids who've had reactive attachment disorder. They'll find any anybody to replace the parents that they have they don't care and to be fair I mean they've been passed around they've picked around whichever parents all the time they kind of want to control that now and they're like well I like these ones someone else took me away from those but I don't like these ones I'll just go find a new one it's it kind of makes sense but it also doesn't make sense in society so the third screw is peer group where they have isolation 
deviant affiliations, persistent physical or emotional conflict, avoidance, passivity, those kind of things, or age-inappropriate affiliations, where they're kind of not where they're supposed to be. Um, and the next is legal, where you have arrests, recidivism, that means repeating those same things, getting in trouble for the same things, detention, convictions, incarcerations, um, violation of probation, where they're just being rebellious within the parameters of the law, those kind of things. Physical health, including illness that cannot be fully accounted for. Physical injuries, digestive, neurological, sexual, immune, cardiopulmonary, severe headaches, because their body is so dysregulated, you're going to have a lot of dysregulation that just is in the body. Um, as you go down, there is Dr. Vander Kolk, and she is kind of who put this together and who just gave it to the board and was like, hey, I think this should be a diagnosis. She has a book called The Body Keeps Score. And this is where she talks about how when your body undergoes these traumas, it will hold it somewhere. It will hold it in your head. It will hold it in your intestines. It will hold it in your muscles. It'll hold it somewhere. And and you don't quite get rid of it until you've worked through it. So when it's talking about your physical health, absolutely. And as caregivers, you need to be careful and watch that for yourself because you're going to find your health is going to tank because of this very same thing, because you are constantly dealing with all of these stresses that this child is dishing towards you at all times, that you're like, okay, like I, I have it in this muzzle. This is, it's in my brain. It's in my heart. It's in my eyes. Like it'll just be somewhere. And I really recommend that book. Maybe I'll do a book report on it. A review, I mean, book report and um, talk more about it. But the last section it has here under the functional impairment is the vocational. And this has to do with your jobs and an inability to keep jobs or get a job, conflict with your coworkers, underemployment, things like that. Now, a lot of those don't really count with my daughter because she's six. So a lot of those aren't really going to be there. But this is an incredibly informative article. And it just goes on and explains why uh, when you talk about developmental trauma disorder, which they call DTD in the article, talks about how they have self-harm, distrust of people in relationships, uh, aggression, and how they can get depression, anxiety, PTSD. They have difficulty managing their emotions, controlling their impulses, and managing their stress. So I really like it. I wish that this was in the DSM-5 because I don't think it's reasonable that my daughter has been in therapy for three and a half years and we've never heard of this before. So I think it needs to be in there, even though the snarky person that I am, you know, I don't even, even though they've heard of reactive attachment disorder, they have no idea what to do with it. And as you go through this, that is a huge point of frustration for me is because, again, I think I alluded to this at the beginning, where they say, oh yeah, here's what the definition is, here's what falls under this definition, but when it comes to treatment, I mean, it's essentially 
garbage. <laughs> it's essentially nothing. They do talk about a few things where like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that. But when you have a child, it's in my case with reactive attachment disorder, cognitive behavioral therapy can actually be a very bad thing for these kids. It can teach them more manipulation tactics, et cetera, et cetera. And so when it comes to treating it, I'm not sure that anybody really knows. I just feel like, again, those PhDs are sitting in that room and they're saying, let's describe stuff. And they're not saying, let's figure out how to help people. Though, to be fair, one is significantly harder than the other. (laughs) So when it talks about in the article, emotional regulation difficulties, it talks about mood swings, emotional control, like inability to have emotional control, persistent sadness and anger. Uh, just kind of goes through it, talks a little bit about the difference between PTSD, complex PTSD and developmental trauma disorder. And I want to just read this paragraph to you, even though it's kind of a long one. So it says, though developmental trauma disorders shares some similarities with PTSD and CPTSD, it is important to distinguish between these conditions. DTD is separate from those other diagnoses because it specifically revolves around repeated exposure to trauma during childhood and is more profound has a more profound impact on the child's development. So you can get PTSD from anything that happens and you can get complex PTSD from anything that happens repeatedly, but they're trying to canal this DTD, this developmental trauma disorder into childhood repeated traumas. So it says here, I know, I'm sorry. I'm (laughs) so bad at telling you when the quote ends. So the quote ended after repeated exposure to trauma during childhood and impact on the child's development, unquote, and we'll continue on and say, quote, this differentiation holds significant importance for precise diagnosis and treatment as children with DTD might require varied interventions and support compared to those other trauma related disorders end quote. So that was, I'm so sorry that I'm confusing when I read that. If you would like to learn more, really, I highly recommend going to this website. It again is attachmenttraumanetwork.org and it's called Developmental Trauma Disorder. It doesn't really have a specific author. It's just a bunch of different articles um, that have citations at the end. It's really, it really is great. I would like to just email this link to all of the medical mental health professionals we've been to, to be like, here you go. <laughs> you should know about this. But what it talks about is it talks about the treatment options. And here I'm going to get a little bit snarky because I just have had a bad experience and I am a little bit snarky about this. They talk a lot about trauma-informed care. And trauma-informed care, when you go down the rabbit hole, it just mostly talks about really bland and basic things to be like, be aware that there could be trauma. Be gentle, be considerate, be, and I'm like, oh my gosh, but what do we do? <laughs> like, 
sure now I know what tone I should use and now I know what this I should use which I don't I'm pretty grouchy sometimes but you know I'm like okay I get it now what do I do but what this article says is it says that you need to focus for giving trauma-informed care on establishing safety establishing self-regulation self-reflection and helping the child process those traumatic memories and integrate them into their life story. So one of the best pieces of advice that I got one time a long time ago is that when you are dealing with children who are older, you can talk to them and remind them of that child in that difficult place. And you can say, what would the self now, what would you now tell yourself back when they were feeling this way. I've tried this a bit with my six-year-old and I think that it's really, really good, though I don't think I can attribute it to why she's been so successful. I actually think it's been like 500 little things along with the fact that her biological brother came to live with us for a month and hit same 100% biological parents and they had burned him a little bit. (laughs) They had burned him because they were not good caregivers. And, um, I think that that was an awakening for her to realize that no, really they were not a good place for her. So that's just a little bit of our story intermingled in there. They talk about in the article, going back to this, evidence-based intervention. They talk about play therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and how that can help children with developmental trauma disorder. I believe this. When your child has been exposed to multiple violent situations, when they have been exposed to things like that, I can believe that this would be beneficial. But when you have a child whose brain did not properly develop due to neglect, these options are not as effective. And so even though I really like this diagnosis, when they talk about the things that are beneficial, these are already things that have been proven not to be beneficial for children with reactive attachment disorder. So instead of having it be a replacement for reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder, I would say this is more of a like a side-by-side diagnosis where you would say, hey, my child has de- developmental trauma disorder because they have disinhibited social engagement disorder due to the neglect. Like, something like that and the change of caregivers like I don't think it is an actual replacement I think it is an additional diagnosis and good grief when your child experiences trauma you can list off those diagnoses nonstop. I mean there's just such an impact on children when they experience this and and when you think of the kids right now who are going through difficult times due to war or due to economic turmoil there's a lot of people going through a lot of things out there and it can really impact their cognitive development. The last thing I'm going to touch on is the school support portion. It talks, I know a lot of us have our kids inside school. Or we're trying to get to figure out all of the little programs that we need our schools to help us out and listen and all these things. <laughs> it talks, I mean, really 
these are the kind of things where it's not really helpful where they're like, Oh, get accommodations. And it's like, thanks. What accommodations, you know, or implement trauma sensitive practices. Okay. What trauma sensitive practices. But the thing that I like is this part where it says you incorporate your trauma informed practices in the classroom. You create a structured and consistent environment and you communicate with all the people involved, which is what those programs are supposed to do. But you as a parent have to advocate for all of these communications to actually happen. You as the parent have to say, okay, I need everybody to gather together. I need this meeting to happen. I need this to be what we're doing right now. Because what you will find is the school's busy. School has a million and a half things to do. They're not going to be the ones that initiate this. This is going to be more likely you that has to initiate this. Which reminds me, I have an email to send out to a vice principal at my child's school. Well, it can be nice. It's going to be fine. I'm not angry. It's just time. So I really hope this helps you understand developmental trauma disorder and see if it fits inside the parameters of your hard kid. I hope it doesn't because I hope that whatever is hard is not terribly hard. And I hope that somehow we can find a way to have these kids feel a little better when they've experienced so much. Thank you so much for joining me.